You know, we don't want to risk missing something. You know, if somebody has a murmur, I'm not going to be able to hear that murmur unless I put a stethoscope on their chest. We need to make sure that as telemedicine continues to expand, we can still offer that level of care for patients and know when it's appropriate for them to have a telemedicine encounter and when it's appropriate for them to be seen in person. Hey everybody, hope you are having a wonderful day. Welcome back to another episode of Digital Health Entrepreneurship. I'm sitting here with Lawrence Gerard and Drew Kaiser. Uh, and today we're gonna talk again more about the inside workings of Fruit Street, but also really how telemedicine works on a practical level. So Drew, thanks so much for uh, sitting down with us today. Of course, my pleasure. Awesome. Drew, why don't you start off just by kind of giving us some insight into what your role is there at Fruit Street, and then uh, Lawrence has some great questions lined up for you. Yeah, so uh, a little bit of my background. I'm uh, traditionally emergency medicine trained, so I'm board certified in emergency medicine, uh, and I've been doing quite a bit of telemedicine over the past year. I came in, I be uh, I got involved, I, I would say, with Fruit Street initially as a physician investor, um, but I worked with some other telemedicine startups as far as development of their user interface for physicians, because I think that's one thing that's always lacking in EMR, any EMR system, is how is the ease of use for the physician um, when you look at a certain system. And so I started talking to Lawrence about ideas that I had, feedback I had, and over the next couple of months, that kind of led into uh, assuming a role of the medical director. So not only developing the user interface and working with the engineers, but also now creating a lot of our clinical guidelines, uh, scope of practice um, for COVID MD, and then where we will potentially be going in the future. Yeah, so, so I guess, um, could you share with everyone you know, how many telemedicine consultations do you think you've done in your life? And uh, what would you estimate? I, so there, there's a combination of telemedicine is broken up into two categories, asynchronous and synchronous. So synchronous is a face-to-face conversation that you have with a patient. And there are a lot of telemedicine platforms that will support that. But there are also asynchronous consultations where you're able to con- communicate to the patient either back and forth via text um, or to do a uh, chart review or medication reviews. Uh, so between asynchronous and synchronous, I think, I mean, it's, uh, it's gotta be close to 13,000, uh, consults I've done. Um, I'm, I'm losing track, it, but yeah, it's, it's well over 10,000 at this point. That's incredible. Yeah. On that asynchronous versus asynchronous, asynchronous, I've been investigating that recently. I mean, there's a, have you ever done any, any calls for 98.6? Or, or so 98.6 is like a text-based primary care. So there's no video at all. I think you can only do that in certain states though. I don't, are you, do you know? Yeah. So d- different states have different regulations on what they consider to be a, uh, an encounter with a physician. And I can't speak to each state, but there are differences on what within certain state regulations on what they consider to be uh, an acceptable encounter. Some states will allow for uh, text messaging or asynchronous uh, encounters. You know, I live in California. I do it in California, uh, Texas, Florida, New York. I know I've, I've, I've done those in the past, but uh, I do know that other states are far more strict on what they consider to be an acceptable encounter that either has to be a audio or a video synchronous encounter. 
Um, so there, there are, and those regulations are changing. I think they're going to keep changing over the next couple of years as telemedicine improves. Does it concern you at all? Um, text messaging with a patient that you can't necessarily verify their identity. I mean, I would imagine that it depends on what they're asking you to prescribe or what their condition is. Right. I mean, cause I could imagine that maybe for some things you might not want to do it over text, but if it was over video, maybe it'd be okay. I mean, I mean, I just feel like if I was a physician, maybe I would be a little more hesitant for certain things through text messaging. I mean, sure, if somebody wants like an antifungal medication prescribed, like, okay, that's one thing. But then there's other medication where maybe it's more serious, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And so there are certain there are certain restrictions as far as uh, those asynchronous encounters. And a lot of those do tend to be uh, medication refills or renewals. So like if I'm going to refill somebody's statin and they can just take a picture of their labs and upload that for me and a picture of their ID and a selfie of their face and I can confirm who the patient is, I can review their labs and what medication they've been on and I can very easily renew their current statin medication, something like that. You know, that's, that's very simple. That's something that is completely appropriate via an asynchronous encounter. It saves them a trip to the physician's office or trying to communicate with their personal physician and they can just have it done very easily from their home. But it does become, you know, a little bit more difficult when they're trying to describe, you know, their their sore throat or a rash or another thing where you need to be able to at least lay eyes on the problem. So there are certain confines regarding, you know, what you can and can't do with asynchronous, but it does end up being a huge um, time saver for patients and a big convenience when you can do a lot of those uh, very simple things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And another question I have is um, your experience with physician staffing models for telemedicine. Um, you know, cause I think that's one of the hardest parts is as a telemedicine company, it's a supply and demand issue of how many patients and how many doctors you don't want the doctors just sitting around all day waiting for consultations if the telemedicine company is only willing to pay them on a per consultation basis and the, the telemedicine company doesn't want to pay them hourly to just sit there and not earn any revenue. So I, I guess what have you seen is the most common staffing model? Like do physicians sign up for a shift or do they get a text message when there's a patient or what, what have you seen? Oh, it's all over the place. It's all over the place. Um, and I think that's one of the, in, in any type of emerging market like this, I think that's one of the biggest um, initial hurdles is trying to maximize the time for the physician so that they don't feel like they're wasting their time and they could be doing something more profitable, um, Making, but also making sure you have appropriate availability for a patient so that patients are going to continue to use your platform. Uh, I've seen, I've seen mix. I've seen... Um, combo of we'll pay you a very small hourly rate with a per consult fee on top of that. Um, some are purely per consult fee, uh, which, and those are, are harder to a lot certain timeframes, you know, um, you could sit there for eight hours and get six consults. And then if you haven't done anything else with your day, that's kind of, you know, you've wasted a lot of time as a physician, that's not worth your time. Um, and so, I, with those models, I think it's very helpful where if a physician could just say, yeah, I'm available this day, I'll be going about my day-to-day -day business doing what I need to do. But if you send me a text message when a patient is ready and I can go to a place where uh, it's private and I can have an encounter that's HIPAA compliant, then that ends up being the best of both worlds because the physician can be doing whatever else they need to do if they're just at home. 
um, and then you notify them. So I've had good success with that model as well, where I just get a text message notification, you know, here's the next five minutes will, the patient will be ready for you. Um, that's another benefit too of asynchronous is you can respond on your own time. But like I said, there are some limitations with that as well. What have you seen is the range of what telemedicine companies will pay per consult for these you know, simple internal medicine visits? Uh, for a synchronous consult, they tend to range anywhere from 20 to 23 up to 30 to 40, sometimes even $50, depending on uh, week versus weekday versus weekend, day and night. So a lot of companies do offer a differential where if you start taking consultations at nighttime, because, you know, they want to offer 24-hour coverage like any urgent care or ER would, um, but there has to be an incentive a lot of times for the physicians to take consults in the middle of the night when patients might need them. Um, so there is a wide range. Uh, I do know that companies do have a little bit of uh, flexibility as far as negotiations go with that. Um, but I would say the basic anywhere from low twenties to $30 range for a general synchronous, uh, consultation, uh, you know, Monday through Friday is pretty much a good estimate. Do you have any recollection of these, you know, what the hourly rate has been for these models where, it's like a base hourly rate plus a per consult fee. Yeah. So that also varies state by state too, because different states have different regulations on whether or not you can have a nurse practitioner or a physician uh, as the provider. And so that tends to um, vary quite often. So I've seen, uh, I'm just constantly getting, um, you know, through different uh, job websites, um, ranges from what, what companies pay. And that tends to be anywhere from like, They'll say fifty to one hundred and twenty-five dollars, and maybe fifty is the base rate per hour. Fifty to seventy-five per hour, uh, and then plus a per consult fee. Maybe you can flex that up to over a hundred, hundred twenty, hundred fifty per hour. But it varies so much that uh, it's really uh, it tends to be very dependent on the company, and companies might be changing very quickly. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I haven't thought about that model before because I mean if. If a telemedicine company were to pay a physician $50 an hour for 40 hours of coverage a week, it's $2,000, which is really not that much. But then, you know, if the physician were to do, um, I don't know, let's just call it 100 consults in a week, um, I mean, you know, they could be earning four grand a week. Mm-hmm. I mean, they could end, end up earning, you know, $15,000, $20,000 a month in theory, right. the volumes there. But I think that's, uh, I almost feel like for a new telemedicine company, paying some base hourly rate plus per consult is probably the best model because otherwise, how are you going to have physicians available? I mean, right. do you agree? I don't know. And uh, another thing as well is the landscape is changing and it has been changing drastically over the past couple of years. So as I've been watching these job offers come in, you know, initially it was, we need coverage in Texas. We need coverage in California. You know, California, Texas, New York, Florida, a couple other states tend to be some of the more um, telemedicine heavy uh, states. And so they would say, we need coverage in, in these states. And now uh, over the past year, I would see, we need a physician with a minimum of five state licenses. And now a minimum of 10 state licenses. I just ha- I saw one job that was posted, minimum of 20 state licenses and so there's this market that's being created for physicians that 
if you can get a lot of state licenses, you can market yourself very well for these telemedicine companies. And it benefits both. You can take, you can fill your plate with now consults from multiple states at once. And that company can guarantee coverage in all of those states with just one or two physicians. And so I'm, I'm seeing the landscape change as far as that goes as well. Yeah. And also, um, I think there's an, the interstate medical licensure compact. I'm not, yeah. are, you, are you familiar with that? I think it expanded to like 32 states where what if you get one license in one of the states, you get coverage in the other ones fairly easily. Yeah. A colleague of mine just did that. So he's in, uh, so there are certain states that are, where it does not apply. And unfortunately the last time I checked where I live in California, uh, that is not a, an eligible state, but that is a very valuable thing for somebody who is eligible, who does live in one of those states where you can very easily obtain many state licenses at once. A friend of mine is actually doing that. And I'm, you know, different states, it, it varies. You know, you get a, a licensing company that can help you, but can still take um, yeah, many months to get a state license. And a friend of mine just started a couple of weeks ago and had 10 state licenses within two or three weeks, just yeah. like that. Yeah, so it looks like California, Texas, Florida, New York don't have it yet. Right. Um, but um, so it looks like, like if a physician had a license in California, New York, Florida, Texas, and let's say, um, you know, Illinois, it looks like they would be covered in, I mean, really in the majority of the country. I need to check on this in more detail, but I mean, is that your understanding? If you have a license in any one of these blue states, you're covered in the rest of them? Or do you have, do you have, to, you have to apply for a, a, another license for the compact as well? I believe it's where you're physically located. So you have to be uh, based in one of those states, I think is because it would have been easy for me to just get one of those state licenses and then be eligible. But I think it's based on where you are located. Um, you like your, either your home address or your home state. Yeah, I'm not sure. I thought, I, I thought it was per license, but if I might could do this to check with the lawyers, that would be a, a pr yeah, it would be easier. Cause you, then you would just ask yourself, you know, which state is the easiest to get a license right. in that start. Exactly. But, but anyway, we should check on that. But, but, um, yeah, because the licensing companies definitely charge quite a bit, like several hundred dollars per physician mm -hmm. uh, when they, you know, when they want to charge us. I'm curious, Drew, are most doctors that are doing telemedicine, is it like something they're doing on the side or how many percent, like, what do you think the percentage of doctors uh, or are there any that, I mean, they're truly just, their whole job is taking telemedicine visits and they're kind of, you know, connected to a few different companies that could be sending them sending them patients and they're, you know, sitting at home or sitting in their office, kind of just taking a, a high volume of consults each day. So the vast majority of physicians have zero experience with telemedicine at all. So that is going to be something that continually changes over, let's say the next decade, I think it's going to be, and, and COVID has kind of forced our hand in that direction, you know? Right. Um, so more physicians now are being forced through their hospital system or through their organization to take telemedicine consultations that they've never done before. Um, and it's showing this market and the validity of it, I think. Uh, there is a very small subset of physicians who do this uh, full-time. They get, um, you know, 20, 25, 30. Some physicians have 50 state licenses. They're just licensed in every state, which it seems like mm -hmm. in and of itself would be a full-time job just managing those licenses. <laughs> right. Um, but in there, just with a couple of companies and some physicians will just uh, full-time, they can make uh, what they made or 
uh, competitive to what they would make full-time working in a hospital or in a clinic, um, just sitting at their home and uh, doing uh, telemedicine consults. A friend of a friend, he had said at one point, it's like, I do not want to touch another patient in my career. That was like his joke. And so he just uh, went full-time with um, uh, telemedicine and is making pretty much the equivalent salary that he would as a hospitalist um, before he uh, transitioned to telemedicine. So it's certainly a possibility. I mean, if you did, if you did 10,000 consults a year at $30, you know, $300,000 a year, which would be like 200 consults a week, which would be like, uh, what is that? It's going to be like, I don't know if you could do 40 per day. I guess, I guess it's not that. Yeah. And I mean, these aren't like hour long zoom calls with patients. Like how, what's the usual length of some of these calls Uh, with patients? You do get feedback from these companies. So, um, one of the companies I was with the average call to be about 11 minutes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Which isn't that abnormal from when you go into a family practice doctor, once you're checked in and everything. I mean, that's usually, that's, it seems pretty equal to the amount of time you're spending with a doc. Right. Oftentimes I'll carve out 15 minutes for a uh, follow-up visit in the, in the clinic. You know, they're trying to get patients in and out as, as fast as they can. Uh, and that's also different we, with synchronous versus asynchronous consults. You know, if I'm doing a synchronous encounter, I have to make sure that I can see a patient, talk to them. We have a, a more formal encounter, so to speak, and that can be, you know, 11 to 15 minutes or so. Uh, but asynchronous consults, uh, sometimes, you know, you can do, um, you know, one in two to five minutes, depending on, on what type of, um, uh, renewal you're doing for like a medication or something like that. You know, uh, someone needs to, uh, new birth control medication and they've been on it and they've been seeing their primary doctor. I just, you know, I want to get it from you. So I don't have to go into clinic. That doesn't take a lot of time. Uh, you're not going to be reimbursed $30 for that. Those tend to be, you know, in the sub $10 range. But when you're talking about two minutes worth to do a consult, Again, if you get that volume up, then it can it can certainly add up to quite a bit. Yeah, and and um, I guess like what are the most common conditions that you see being treated through just a video visit with a physician, leaving aside all the other things that Fruit Street does, but just just in terms of like internal medicine consults. Yeah, what what the the bread and butter are kind of the low risk urgent care, and that's kind of what we're developing as far as uh, Fruit Street's initial um, model. It's, you know, it's the general musculoskeletal uh, complaints, the cough, cold, URI, flu, now COVID as well as in with all of that, Um, you know, uh, bronchitis, rash, simple, uncomplicated urinary tract infections, um, uh, uh, things like that, you know, basic fungal infections, uh, a tinea type infection. those are kind of the bread and butter and those make up the majority of what I've seen in kind of across all platforms. Could you describe a situation where you feel like it's borderline where maybe you ask 50% of doctors if they, you know, if you should treat this through telemedicine, 50% say yes, 50% say no. What are those like borderline ones where you feel a little bit uncomfortable? That, yeah, that there's, that's constantly changing. There's, um, you know, things like, um, you know, a urinary tract infection in a female, much more common to have a very simple, uh, uh, uncomplicated urinary tract infection. Then you have a male and then you think, okay, UTIs are much less common in males. What are the chances that this could be a sexually transmitted infection? And is this something that is appropriate to treat via telemedicine or should they go and get a formal test 
and know exactly what it is that they're they're dealing with. And that's what I always tell physicians is at the end of the day, even though this is very ease of access, this is still decisions that you're making under your medical license. And so you need to be comfortable with uh, the care that you provide. And I think it's important for companies to also continue to provide recommendations. We know that's part of what we're developing with Fruit Street right now is the uh, scope of practice for our physicians. When as a company do we feel like, you know, in general, there are just too many red flags associated with this and we need to refer the patient for an in-person evaluation. What do physicians like the most about telemedicine in terms of working for these companies and what do they, what do they like the least? Like what are their uh, biggest complaints? What um, I, I kind of sum that up with people in that you have infinite flexibility and no reliability, I guess. And that's kind of the, the very general term to say you can set your hours as much or as little as you want, whatever availability you want, you can, there tends to be very, uh, lax, uh, non-compete with a lot of these companies as well. As long as you provide service for them and you want to take on uh, roles with other companies, then that tends to be uh, favored. But they're, you know, it's it's the market of telemedicine and it's you are just um, waiting for those consults to, to come in. So you're hoping that the company is continuing to bring on new patients to advertise, whether it's business to business or business to direct to consumer. Um, I had one company that just changed their advertising model and I dropped to a fifth of the volume that I was doing uh, in from one month to another, just because they said, we're not going to advertise to this patient population anymore. We're going to work on some backend stuff. And then it affected me directly uh, by losing a huge volume of patients. And so that's the, that's the give and take of it for sure. Yeah. And um, I was just curious, I mean, from your experience, have you witnessed a lot of patients that are paying out of pocket for these visits? I'm not sure if you would even know. I mean, certainly there's a lot of employers and health plans that cover this as a benefit, but like, are you ever made aware of the fact that patients paying out of pocket or do you think there's, I guess, I guess the question is, do you think there's an opportunity there for patients to pay directly? Or do you think that most of it really has to go through employers and health plans covering it? I think when you're looking at urgent care models, those there's a huge benefit for those to be offered with a an employer's health plan because and it's it's very convenient to say uh, to a patient you know if it's just something very quick and you don't you know it's the middle of the night and you've got really bad earache and you've had ear infections in the past and you don't want to go to an urgent care and you want to talk to a doctor and see if a doctor can evaluate it via telemedicine that's a big offer to uh, employees of a company. And it's a big uh, offer for a telemedicine company to show a, an employer how much money they could save by, by incorporating a model like this. Um, but so with that being said, when you see the patient, oftentimes you do not have to worry about the billing. That's another huge benefit as the provider. You're just, you're getting a flat rate a lot of times for these consultations with these companies. And so you oftentimes don't see if it's self-pay or if it's a part of a health plan. Um, a huge part of telemedicine as well are a lot of the lifestyle medicines. We see all of these commercials for, you know, erectile dysfunction medications and all of this stuff. And I, I believe a, a lot of that tends to be self-pay uh, because that's where patients are more comfortable just you know, not having that uncomfortable conversation face-to-face with a doctor. They'd rather have that via telemedicine. Um, but that's a huge market for telemedicine as well. Right, right. Makes sense. 
And I guess what, what do you hear from doctors in terms of their overall feedback on the quality of the user interface in the actual software of these other companies? Like, are they horrible across the board? Amazing. I mean, that, that's what's hard is because you are limited by the audio visual capabilities of the patient. Oftentimes you can have this amazing setup. You can have great audio. You can have a webcam. You can have well lit. You know, I've got my light right here. Um, and so the patients can oftentimes see you and then you are just getting a pixel, you know, four pixel choppy audio encounter with the patient. And that is very frustrating, especially when, you know, it's something where you need at least a visual encounter where, you know, I need to be able to see this rash. I need to be able to see, you know, the back of your throat, if you can even show it to me on a webcam. Um, and that's what one thing that tends to be helpful with that is to allow for the patient to upload photographs at least separate from the encounter so that you at least have some um, uh, evidence of what's going on. Uh, but that's one of the biggest frustrations for me is simply the technical limit limitations of, you know, a patient who doesn't have good mm -hmm. coverage uh, wherever they are in a completely different state from me um, trying to like troubleshoot on the fly with, uh, you know. And so, so I guess you would, you would say that, um, having the option to talk on the phone as a backup would be important. I do do that sometimes. There are some times where I'll use the video visit as a, um, simply to know that I can identify the patient that I'm, you know, I, I'm speaking to the patient I should be speaking with, you know, can I can get a visual of them. Can you confirm your date of birth with me? Or depending on the, the platform, can you confirm that with a, photo ID. And then at some point, if you determine that, all right, I don't need any more of a video uh, capability with this, we can just convert to an audio only encounter. Um, and that's a very helpful thing to offer uh, as a, as a backup as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that it's changing the way that doctors even like approach retirement because uh, Doctors are one profession where they just like working. And I've known a lot of doctors that once they approach retirement, some want to just be done, but some would like the idea of continuing to be able to, you know, do stuff here and there. So I, I think it's going to be really fascinating over the next couple of years just to see how this changes the game of employment for physicians and how they interact with it. Yeah. And, and I guess another question would be, how often do you think these telemedicine companies will, will require a physician to work? A minimum amount of hours per week because one problem that I see happening is, is the following. I mean, I'll tell investors, well, what if we had 300 doctors doing one consultation per day? Um, well, it'd be a hundred thousand consults in a year, which might be $7 million in revenue. And I don't mean that literally because I mean, one consultation per day is great, but if you ask me like, well, would I rather have 300 doctors doing one call per day or hundred doctors doing three calls per day. I mean, you would think that the competency of the physician in terms of their skill in doing telemedicine would be greater if they're doing more consults. So I guess like how often do you see telemedicine companies requiring a minimum number of hours and what does it usually look like? Is it five, 10 hours a week? There, there are certain um, differences with companies. Some companies, they rely on I, what I kind of call it is like a playing in the sandbox model where as soon as you see a, you know, something open up, you just reach out and grab it and you can take it. Um, and, you know, with a company like that, as long as you can get the volume of physicians, then those companies don't really need to worry about you providing a certain set amount of time because they can have thousands and thousands of doctors that are just 
and you, and you pretty much guarantee that, you know, okay, at any given time, we'll probably have doctors that will provide enough coverage. And if you don't, and you start seeing consults back up, then you can start sending little um, reminders to physicians or little additional incentives, um, you know, for the next 30 minutes, kind of like how Uber has their, what is it, their flex rates, you know, where if it's very busy, you pay a little bit more for Uber. Um, but others do certainly ask for you to carve out like a four or a six hour window that you can dedicate and then you can set your schedule um, based on your week, which some physicians prefer that because if they're planning, you know, their, their week in clinic, like a, a friend of mine, he, you know, Thursdays are his day off in clinic. And so Thursday, if he can, he would like to carve out a set amount of time and have patients be able to schedule with him for telemedicine consults. Um, or he can just take urgent care consults on, on like a walk-in, you know, basis uh, for that uh, set time as well. So uh, that's another thing that varies across the board. And, you know, with all these different companies, there are different models that physicians can tend to find one that works well with their um, personal schedule. I mean, I would think that the, from the physician's perspective, they probably just like the per hour model plus a per consult fee the most because I could see someone getting a physician just getting frustrated with like fighting over consults. Like, Oh, I didn't grab it fast enough. Right. I mean, do you think that's true? It, it, it is. Yeah. And there are different models where some will just have the consults available and you just grab what's next in line. And, you know, it, during cold and flu season, yeah, there might be, you know, 50 consults waiting. And so you just keep taking the next one, take the next one. What COVID has kind of, created is this huge market. And so now so many more physicians are signing up for telemedicine that we're in this interesting transition phase where we have a huge interest in it, but companies are still trying to catch up with all of the physicians that are showing this much interest in providing the, um, the patient volume. You know, physicians kind of realize that the good old brick and mortar uh, of encountering patients uh, during a global pandemic puts uh, their livelihood at risk when, you know, I, you know, if you have your own clinic, how am I going to keep the doors open if I can't getting, can't keep getting patients in? So a lot of these physicians then transition to at least as a supplemental income telemedicine. Um, so there's a huge influx of physicians. Now, after the pandemic, it'll be interesting to see where that kind of settles, settles out as far as um, supply and demand, so to speak. Um, but uh, for me, I, I try to just give availability for um, uh, certain blocks of time. I, I don't, I'm not with any company that gives a base hourly rate at this point. Um, I would imagine that would be an, a rare model. Not a lot of the companies like to do a per consult, just a, a flat per consult rate. Uh, we call it like the, you know, it's kind of crude, the eat what you kill model, you know, <laughs> which is not in, in medicine. You can edit that out. That's not uh, appropriate for a medical podcast. We're going to leave it in. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, um, so another question was, uh, so I was just curious. I mean, I know you're an emergency medicine physician, but in your view, what percentage of primary care do you think could be done through telemedicine? Um, cause I've seen some of these companies where like they're offering consumers a subscription for $160 a year, basically unlimited calls with a doctor. And I think it, it probably depends on the patient, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, like if you have type two, you have, you know, foot ulcers, whatever. Okay. That's one thing where I could see why you need a physical exam, but you know, if you're someone that's relatively healthy, um, I would imagine that, you know, a physician talking to you, writing prescriptions that you can pick up, 
that also had the ability to order labs. So say if I have to go to Quest and get an A1C done, I mean, I mean, what, I mean, isn't, isn't the majority of primary care, uh, you know, talking to a doctor, getting prescriptions, getting lab tests, I'm being provocative intentionally, but, 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 you know, I mean, like how much of it could really be done through telemedicine for that person that's just, you know, relatively healthy. I think much more than we currently give uh, telemedicine credit. Uh, I, I, I've been talking to a lot of friends about that because that's something that I'm very interested in as well. You know, in the emergency medicine, it's a very different environment. You know, it's, it's very hands-on. I'm doing a lot of procedures. Uh, patients come to me because, you know, it's uh, kind of more of an extreme situation. But in clinic, yeah, I, I've been talking to a lot of my friends who are primary care docs who work in the clinic. And I ask them, like, how many encounters do you actually need to lay hands on a patient versus how many are you just doing, um, you know, you're going over lab results and you're making changes to medications. Even you had mentioned wound care. That's a, a huge area for telemedicine where you can have an initial consultation with somebody um, provide a little bit of a wound care guideline. And then for follow-up, you know, how much of that needs to be in person versus how much of that can just be really good photographic evidence of how that wound is healing. Um, and so there's so much that, you know, one of the sayings in medicine is what, through a good um, history and review of systems, you should be 90% of where you need to be to make your diagnosis anyways. And your physical exam is just that last 10%. And so how much of that 10% now can we do via telemedicine um, versus how much of that 10% needs to happen face-to-face? -face? That's, um, that's where I'm excited to, to see where you know, we change the future of healthcare with telemedicine because I think it's going to continue to grow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I heard there was a survey that was done recently. It was something like 25% um, of patients were definitely willing to get rid of their primary care doctor to have a virtual one. And there was another 25% that said they would, you know, consider it. So we basically had 50% of people that would consider having their primary care doctor be a telemedicine physician that they don't necessarily see in person. Um, I mean, there's also a huge percentage of the population that doesn't even have a primary care doctor. When I look at these services that are basically saying, you can have a doctor for $160 a year. I mean, I don't know. It seems compelling if you don't have insurance, you don't have a primary care doctor, but, uh, yeah, it's that's yeah, super compelling. It's very compelling. And I think it's, you know, what where we'll end up with is, you know, the pendulum will sway back and forth, you know, until we kind of find the groove of where telemedicine fits really well. Sure. You know, we don't want to risk missing something, you know, if somebody has a murmur, I'm not going to be able to hear that murmur unless I put a stethoscope on their chest. You know, that that still has to be a face-to-face -face interaction. Patients also really value being able to see a physician over time. My wife, she's a pediatrician. The greatest love that she has for her job is getting to see somebody from birth through their entire childhood. And so she loves that continuity of care. Uh, and you don't want to lose that. You don't want to lose that sense of being able to tell your physician what you wouldn't even tell your closest family members because you confide in your physician. And so we need to make sure that as telemedicine continues to expand, we can still offer that level of care for patients and know when it's appropriate for them to have a telemedicine encounter and when it's appropriate for them to be seen in person. And, you know, that's just the, the, the frontier of any new aspect of, uh, you know, whether it's healthcare or another type of business, you know, we're just going to find those uh, boundaries within reason and um, 
it'll be an exciting next couple of decades. I certainly think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think you said it well, it's going to be a little bit like a pendulum where um, we're probably going to realize, oh, we could have been doing this all along with telemedicine. Yeah. And there's probably going to be a little bit going the opposite direction where we realize, oh, maybe we should pull back and keep that only for primary care. Um, but this is fascinating. And I mean, like you said, the next couple of decades, uh, I think it's going to change the workplace for doctors, but also just you know, transforming how we even think about interacting with medicine. So Drew, thanks for, thanks for sharing some of your insight and uh, we'll have to have you back on the show in a couple months to talk about how things have changed. Yeah, I'd be happy to. And things are changing very rapidly at uh, Fruit Street as well. So I'm sure we'll have quite a few updates. Uh, Lawrence needs to maybe get to work a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Come on, Lawrence. Come on, Lawrence, pick up the pace. There's only 24 hours in a day, man. You need to squeeze out maybe 26 or 28. That's no more state licenses. (laughs) <laughs> Gosh, I tell you, that's, yeah. Once we once we improve that and people can get state licenses much more easily, then we'll see telemedicine explode. Mm-hmm. For sure. Definitely. That's cool. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Drew. Thanks, Lawrence. And uh, we'll see you next time. All right. Thanks, everyone.